If you haven't watched our last video on the rise of the militias in the southern colonies, then give it a quick watch. It's around seven minutes. But today we are back with part two of this video series, and we are talking about the Battle of King's Mountain. We left off with Cornwallis brutally trying to sway the southern colonies into submission in such a way that the local populations started to form their own militias. The British were taking their own loyalist militias as well, and this is where one Major Patrick Ferguson enters the picture. Ferguson was Cornwallis's inspector of militias. Ferguson was a bit of a military wonder kid, and he joined the British Army at age 15, and he actually did his own rifle improvement called the Ferguson Rifle. It was a new style of breech-loading rifle, and he even presented that to the King of England. And he was such a military genius when it came to organization that General William Howe, who was a veteran of the Seven Years' War, was his patron. And his life gets kind of thrown out of whack because at Brandywine, Ferguson is wounded and he loses the complete use of his right arm. And he spends months learning to use his left arm so he can write and swing a sword, but he is able to stay in the military despite not having an arm that works, which is pretty remarkable, to be honest with you. But Cornwallis wasn't the biggest fan of him. You know, Ferguson was Scottish and, you know, it's Earl Cornwallis, so there's some snobbery there. And so he sends the Scotsman out on a mission to suppress one of the militias, the Over Mountain Men. So Ferguson, whose nickname was the Bulldog, is desperate for military glory. Huge chip on his shoulder sets out from Charlotte to quell this local patriot militia. Now, the rural people of the Southern colonies were a different bunch. They lived on the very borders of civilization and were completely self-reliant. They lived off the land, answered to no authority, and were constantly fighting against the Indians. This largely Scots-Irish population, they weren't easily intimidated and they believed in action over words. So if something bad happened in the community, they handled it themselves with their own kind of justice, frontier justice. And such a thing was needed after Ferguson takes over Gilbert Town, where he and his men took cattle, broke into homes for plunder, and lorded over the town. However, Ferguson was definitely aware that he was overextended, so he decides that he's going to bluff the militia and wait until he could amass enough troops to wipe them out. So he paroles a young patriot and sends the patriot over to Isaac Shelby, one of the leaders of the Over Mountain Boys, with the message, if you do not desist from opposition to British arms, I will march over the mountains, hang your leaders, and lay the country to waste with fire and sword. Now, before we get to how Shelby responds to this, let's look at Shelby's ties to Virginia. So during Dunmore's War, Isaac Shelby was commissioned as a lieutenant in the Virginia militia. Shelby found a commission from the Virginia Committee of Safety, appointing him to be a captain of a company of Minutemen. In 1777, Virginia Governor Patrick Henry appointed Shelby to a position securing provisions for the army on the frontier, and he served a similar role in the Continental Army in 1778 and 79. 
Now, Shelby was elected to represent Washington County in the Virginia House of Delegates in 79 as well. Then later that year, he was commissioned a major by Governor Thomas Jefferson and charged with escorting a group of commissioners to establish a frontier boundary line between Virginia and North Carolina. And so he is in the frontier when all of this mess is going on in North and South Carolina with Cornwallis. And that's how he gets involved in the war there in the frontier, opposed to being closer to Virginia, where he was more in the realm of operating. So despite being born in Maryland, and he is the future governor of Kentucky, he is definitely a bit of a Virginia boy. So what does Shelby do? He calls the bluff. He grabs Colonel John Seaver, and they send word out to assemble because they are going after Ferguson. In their eyes, Ferguson is a criminal, and they are going to handle him in their own way. But it isn't just the over-mountain boys who assemble. Word gets out to the Virginia militia, so they show up, and they're commanded by Colonel William Campbell. More and more men come in, and they have a force of 1,400 men. This was a massive force, considering, A, it's just militias, and then, B, that there are always rumors of Indian attacks any day now in the frontier. And this is just evidence of the fact that they hate what the British are doing, that you have so many people assemble despite the risk and rumor of Indians attacking. So that is the sheer hatred that these militias have towards how the British are operating in the colonies. Now, remember, this is a force of independent men who really don't answer to anyone. So Shelby actually sends out word to General Gates that they need Daniel Morgan because he's the only person that these rough and t- tumble fellas w- will even listen to. Word doesn't get there in time, so the Patriot force just keeps moving towards Ferguson. So Ferguson gets word of this, and he starts moving his own force back towards Cornwallis. So he eventually decides to make camp on King's Mountain. It reminds him of the Scottish Highlands. He likes that he has uh, the high ground, and he's one day away from Cornwallis. So Ferguson's ego is at play here because he can't go completely back because that would look like cowardice, like the militias scared him off with his force of a thousand men. And he's able to kind of play the game his own way where he can get reinforced if he needs to, but he also doesn't lose face. And so his hope is that he can win here and then bring a bunch of prisoners back to Cornwallis, win glory. And so he decides to wait for them. Now, this is a fun little story. A Patriot scout goes out and knocks on the door of a major loyalist home and they ask where Ferguson is. And so uh, the fella is pretending to be someone who wants to join up with the localist militia, and he wants to know where Ferguson can be found. And so the loyalist family t- just straight up tell him, and they even say you can recognize him by this checkerboard shirt he wears. And so the Patriot Scout thanks them and brings this information back. And it turns out that on King's Mountain, where Ferguson is, he's actually in a hunting camp that some of the participants in this army, uh, a smaller militia, actually 
runs and that's their like one of their favorite hunting ground places so they know the lay of the land quite well but since it's been days upon days of chasing after ferguson the force is actually smaller now uh you've had people drop off remember it's a militia people can come and go as they please and so it's now only a force of around 900 some men but they keep up this blistering pace through the frontier the patriots feel good uh, and they're going to push their advantage And so the battle plan is they're going to surround Ferguson and fall in on him. And since they're aiming up at him, they don't have to worry about friendly fire since they're surrounding him. And so this is how they move out and the battle starts. And the battle isn't going great for the Patriots initially. Uh, They make some mistakes. So on one of the sides, it's too steep and muddy. And that slows down one part of the army. Another side actually ends up going to the completely wrong hill. So they actually show up later in the battle. And then, you know, it's supposed to be a sneak attack, but Ferguson actually catches Campbell and the Virginia militia. And so they're actually taking a lot of the force themselves. And so this puts Campbell in a pretty rough spot. And he has to make this executive decision of, do I retreat or do I fully commit? Because if he retreats, the whole the whole plan might just evaporate because they can get because they get routed. And so he commits and the Virginia militia takes round after round of bayonet charges from Ferguson's forces. So Ferguson's fighting in the traditional army tactics of the day. And despite that, he's not really getting an edge. The Virginia militia struggles and no side is really advancing well. And actually, despite having the high ground, Ferguson's forces are actually shooting over the heads of the Patriots. And so as the Patriot morale lowers, what actually happens is kind of a bit of a godsend. So morale goes to crap and the overly independent militias just break up and they decide fighting the way they want to fight. And so they're in duos and they're using the tactics that they learned fighting against the Indians. And so Uh, The commanders saw how successful this was, and they shout out to the troops, give them the Indian play. So they're hiding behind trees, they're hiding behind rocks, and they're using their hunting rifles, which are different from muskets. So they take longer to reload, but they have better range, and they're really the weaponry of the common man. And they use those hunting rifles to snipe out the British forces. Now, These rifles are unique because if you're good at it, you can hit a squirrel from over um, 100 yards away. So that's a very tough shot. But, you know, these frontiersmen were used to making those shots. So it's very different from the way Ferguson's going to fight in that traditional military way. And slowly but surely, the Patriots end up gaining ground on Ferguson using the Indian play tactic style. And so as the battle wages into the afternoon, Ferguson finds himself completely surrounded. As they get closer, the real tactics of the frontier emerge. Knives, tomahawks, hand-to-hand combat, the psychological warfare of Indian work halls ring around the British and the Patriots finally fall in on them. One of the loyalists who survived the battle described the events as this. They darted like enraged lions up the mountain, tall, raw-boned, and sinewy with long, matted hair. 
like so many devils from the infernal region. And devils they were. As we talked about it in our last video, the Southern Patriots were inflamed over the lack of quarter given by Tarleton. And, you know, remember, the frontier justice aspect and that it's the militia, it's not really your standard military. So after Ferguson gets killed, because he's so easy to spot with the checkerboard shirt, the British forces laid down their weapons and waved the white flag, and the battle was over. But the bloodshed continued. So Charles Bowen wrote in his military pension application, declarant slipped behind a tree, cocked his gun, and shot the first man who hoisted the flag among the enemy and immediately turned his back to the tree to reload. Ferguson's second-in-command who survived wrote this, the Americans resumed firing. Afterwards, ours renewed under the supposition that they would not give quarter. In the end, the Patriots lost 29 men with 58 wounded of their force of 910. The British lost 244, 164 wounded, and 670 who were captured. It was a total victory for the Patriots. So the Patriots camp at Kings Mountain that night, but the next day they break camp and head out. They fear Cornwallis and Tarleton are on their way. They're a day away, remember? And so what they actually do is they take all the British prisoners and they force them to carry all of these muskets. They remove the firing locks from the muskets so they're non-functional and they move out. It isn't until days later that Tarleton finds the carnage left behind. In his memoirs, he wrote this, The destruction of Ferguson and his corps marked the period and the extent of our first expedition into North Carolina, added to the depression and fear it communicated to the loyalists upon the borders and to the southward. The effect of such an important event was sensibly felt by Earl Cornwallis at Charlottetown. The weakness of his army, the extent and poverty of North Carolina, the want of knowledge of his enemy's designs, and the total ruin of his militia presented a gloomy prospect at the commencement of the campaign. So before Cornwallis is really even getting going, he's completely done. North Carolina was too poor to feed his army. He can't send his troops out to find provisions without the militias picking them off. And now there was such a great fervor against him. He has zero public support, so Cornwallis flees to South Carolina for the winter and will begin amassing what he thinks he needs to win this war. So that's where we're ending today. Cowpins is on the horizon. Uh, before we wrap up, I would like to mention a few facts about the Virginia militia. A third of all deaths at Kings Mountain were Virginians. Despite the grueling pace and having traveled the furthest to even get there, they still made it to the battle. Now, the 1619 Project won't tell you this, but there were actually five free blacks fighting in the Virginia militia at Kings Mountain. William Campbell, the de facto leader of the Virginia militia, was married to one Elizabeth Henry, the sister of Patrick Henry. Campbell was said to have urged his men on during the battle by saying, shout like hell and fight like devils. During the war, the British began to refer to Shelby and Campbell's men by saying, those are the damned yelling boys. And obviously, the militia's like that. 
Now, Campbell did not survive to see the end of the war. He dies shortly after Guilford Courthouse. But before he died, the Virginia Assembly did commission him as a brigadier general for his contributions throughout the war effort, which I think is really impressive. Now, I'm showing a little bit of my Virginia bias here, so just bear with me. Now, what have famous Americans said about Kings Mountain? So Teddy Roosevelt said this brilliant victory marked the turning point of the American Revolution. Thomas Jefferson called it the turn of the tide of success. Herbert Hoover gets real poetic with it and says this. This is a place of inspiring memories. Here, less than a thousand men, inspired by the urge of freedom, defeated a superior force entrenched in this strategic position. This small band of patriots turned back a dangerous invasion, well designed to separate and dismember the United Colonies. It was a little army and a little battle, but it was of mighty important. History has done scant justice to its significance, which rightfully should place it beside Lexington, Bunker Hill, Trenton, and Yorktown. Now, join us next time as we talk about cowpens, which old Professor Blakemore said was just as impressive as Hannibal at, and people vary on how they pronounce this, uh, but canny. So join us next time. It will be a fun one. And I know Rob is going to want to handle that one exclusively. So until next time, have a great 4th of July and isn't American history the best? In freedom we're born and in freedom we'll live. Our purse is our pain.